everyone, Ariel Adams here, back with Richard, and this is another episode of Spending Time at Dubai Watch Week 2021, where we introduce some interviews that I did on scene in Dubai, talk a little bit about it. So uh, Richard, uh, tell, tell us who we're going to hear from first. We are going to hear first from Marco from uh, the Instagram channel, Swiss Watch Gang. It's really early over here, and saying Swiss Watch Gang is really a bit challenging because I'm not quite awake enough yet, but we're getting there. So we're going to hear from Marco at Swiss Watch Gang. So here is Marco. Hello, this is Marco from Swiss Watch Gang, YouTube and Instagram account. Today at Dubai Watch Week here, I met my good friend Ariel Adams with whom I actually used to work a few yeah. years ago. Yeah, Marco, it's so great to see you here. Great to see you too, man. This is why we come to Dubai Watch Week to meet with people, uh, because we're not meeting in Europe and we're not meeting in the United States. Exactly. So we have to go to the Middle East. Yes. Have to meet where neither of us live. <laughs> exactly. Now, you've been to Dubai Watch Week before, right? Yes, I've been two times already. This is my third time, um, which is actually really exciting. And I've seen the development of the fair. It grew a bit bigger now with more brands and I really love the AC inside the booth. Oh, the air conditioning. <laughs> the yeah. air conditioning, yes. Dubai is a humid, warm very, place. Very, very. And it's funny because we're all supposed to be dressed up here. Yes. You and I are a little bit more casual. But yes. I feel bad for all these people in their suits <laughs> and everything like that. Exactly. I now, mean, we're from Switzerland, so we, we have snow already. Oh. So 29 degrees Celsius here in the evening isn't easy for us. Yeah, we must be a little bit excited about it. Yes, very, very as well, to hit the pool as well. Were you able to get out of Europe uh, prior to this, this opportunity? Um, I didn't go yet, but I could have gone, yeah. But uh, I just focused on growing the business in Switzerland. I traveled a bit in Europe to Serbia, Slovenia, Germany, France, uh, but nothing outside of, let's say, Europe for now. And talk a little bit about why Dubai Watch Week is important for what you do. First of all, I love coming to Dubai, so it's always a great excuse to be here. I also like to actually meet people and collectors from all around the world because they follow me on my social media and YouTube channel and they really like to you know, meet me in person, I like to meet them. You also see very exotic watches in Dubai and let's say also in Asia. That's why I like to go to Singapore also. Um, and just I like to experience a new fair. And since Basel isn't there anymore, this is slowly becoming the, the, the only, let's say, one that is here. You and I like exotic watches, but I'm not sure if yes. everyone listening knows what an exotic watch is. Describe what types of watches get you excited. Basically a watch that just, when you see it, your emotions take over. You don't care about the price, you don't care about the, the brand maybe even sometimes. You just kind of like the design. When you find out the price, usually you're a bit taken away because it's usually very expensive. But more and more you have watches which are affordable and below $10,000 like the one I have on the wrist today from Holtinrich watches from the Netherlands with a 3D printed case um, below 6k USD but I love seeing you know uh, diamond watches in Dubai especially with some piece unique pieces I saw Philippe de Four already which I never seen before with a special dial which again is just something you see at Dubai and what's the vibe at Dubai Watch Week 2021 in your opinion? For now, I think it's very laid back, very relaxed. Also because of the music in this, uh, this place, it feels like I'm entering a spa. It smells good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, people are just happy to, to be outside again and to meet everybody. So you have a lot of positivity, I think. Margaret from Swiss Watch Thank you. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you. 
Right, Ariel. So I really enjoyed that interview, but I'm curious. So how do you know Marco? Marco is one of a number of people who I actually um, met very early on in their career, and I, uh, in, in my own way, helped train them. Of course, they had a lot of natural ability, and they went on to do other things. And because I've been doing this for 15 years now, basically, there's a number of people like this. Marco is someone who lives in Zurich, who joined me one year at SIHH and some other things like that and did some social media work for our team. Very enthusiastic person who wanted to be in his own way a media person. And what's interesting is there's a lot of people who want to be in the watch media space and do not recognize that there's no straightforward way of doing it. And the monetization route is is unclear at best. You know, brands are not understanding always what's what's being offered. It's not like a, a, a business model, like a print publication, which they sort of understand from legacy, uh, you know, for legacy purposes. So people like him have to be highly entrepreneurial and they oftentimes do services, help promote brands, but it's oftentimes interesting because they're in the front lines of new media and brands are oftentimes not as well versed. And so his opinions come from the perspective of someone who is helping brands reach audiences through new media platforms, social media and, and others. Do, they do a lot of video production. In addition to actually giving them great results, they also have to explain you know, those results. So it's, it's interesting that in 10 years from now, there'll be a lot more literacy in the space. But like myself, Marco is another sort of new media personality in the luxury watch space. We, I mean, I don't know if he would call himself an influencer, but I think that's probably how I would view the Instagram account at the very least. Obviously, he does other stuff in the background. How important was it not just for the brands to be to buy Watch Week and the pure press like yourself, but also various influencers that were clearly there? Was the relationship between the influencers and the brands that were present in Dubai much more publicly obvious than it maybe is when you see it online? There's a larger conversation to be had about influencers in the luxury space. I could go on and on about it. Suffice it to say if that... only we had a podcast that we had complete control over that we could use to talk about such things. If, we, if we must only. come up with one of them. And that's going to be an interesting episode that I'd like to have, you know, some other voices on for sure to sort of help represent the other side. Because I'm not really a big fan of, of influencers. They're essentially opinion mercenaries, people who will come and sell their point of view or say that they like something for money and there's a there's a line between them and others who are who see themselves as as providing services but not their opinion being for sale so i think that you know i I wouldn't call them journalists influencers might be too loaded of a term but that's why i use the term something like you know new media content creators where they leverage platforms but they 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 in their own way try to make it interesting and entertaining and and make content and they are they are true media people just in sort of a a sense that people can't really wrap their minds around so i'm highly encouraging of new media individuals but i think that there needs to be less emphasis on pure influencers because at the end of the day once consumers recognize they're being duped their opinions can turn very very quickly and it can be damaging to those brands which support the influencers because they're sort of guilty by association interestingly he was wearing a daniel holtenrick's watch did you get to see that yeah yeah so i i you know he is a real watch person um mm. and, and that is of course not everyone in the media space but he definitely likes independent brands you have a soft definite soft spot for them so he is someone who likes to engage in in watches loves doing it for that purpose it'd be very hard to hustle as hard as people like him have to if it wasn't for a true passion for the product 
Yeah, yeah. No, I think it'd be interesting to get Marco on the show. I actually think a combination of Marco, yourself and Christian from Daily Watch would make a very interesting conversation. Absolutely. We're all friendly. Yeah, let's let's maybe have a conversation sometime in the new year specifically about influencers on the channel. Next up is probably of all the interviews you did, and that's not to say that we're going downhill from here on in, but of all the interviews you did, the next one, which is Ricardo, now I'm going to butcher his name, but I think it's Ricardo Guadalupe. He often goes by Ricardo Guadalupe. Uh, I know that that, that same word can be report, re- pronounced Guadalupe. Um, I've heard him say Guadalupe. So Ricardo Guadalupe from, uh, and just as I've butchered the first name, I'll butcher the brand name, but the brand name is Ublo or Hublet or no, Ublot, no, no. or no, it's Ublo. We're going to listen to Ricardo, and I think this is a fascinating interview because from a big watch brand, he actually gives us quite a lot of detail to chew over. And as you'll see in the rest of this particular edition of the show, what we're talking about and comparing and contrasting is very much three big watch brands with three very well-known independents and how they both tackled Dubai Watch Week, how they've all tackled the uh, pandemic and just how they all see the future. So here we are, here's Ricardo from Ublo. I'm very excited to be speaking with Mr. Ricardo Guadalupe, the CEO of Ublo here at Dubai Watch Week 2021. Ricardo, thanks for chatting with me. Thank you, nice to meet you again, physically. It has certainly been a while. And I have to say, when I think about traveling for uh, watch adventures, Hublot is always very high on my list because I've gone on many adventures with Hublot, the brand which uh, is everywhere um, and is represented um, all over the planet. But here in Dubai, tell me a little bit about how important this market is for you. I think it's really an important market uh, for us because, as you may know, Dubai has become has become a, a hub for, for the world, I would say. So we're really strong with the local customers, but of course with tourists, because Dubai have people coming from everywhere in the world. And uh, the best example is that uh, our boutique uh, in the Dubai Mall is our number one boutique in the world by far really? in terms of sales. So Dubai is really a key market for, for us. Now, I know when you come to a show like this, in addition to wanting to convey the values of the brand, you also learn a lot of things. You've been absent, we've all been absent from events like this for so long. What are some of the things that that you personally would like to learn or or understand at Dubai Watch Week 2021? What we want is really, you know, it's really the the first time we do uh, an exhibition after this pandemic. So uh, we have learned a lot of lessons from the pandemic, so it's nice to see again uh, final consumers uh, uh, coming here to this uh, Dubai Watch Week and a little bit uh, listen to, to what uh, they think, what they like, uh, the evolution, let's say, maybe in the taste uh, of uh, our final consumer. So this contact with the final consumer is very important. Now, you said that you learned some lessons over the pandemic and it's definitely been a growing experience for everyone. What are some of the things that Hublot might be doing differently or maybe just some ways that you're going to see the world differently in the post-pandemic world? I would say that, of course, the digital aspect uh, has been uh, really something that uh, has been key uh, during this pandemic. But what's seeing that, of course, we're selling a physical product, which is a watch. And uh, we believe that still the consumer wants to have this experience of uh, having a look to the watch physically, to, to, to try to wear it on the wrist. 
but I think that digital and physical must find are, are complementary. So we, we can have the first access to customer through either our website, through the social media, and at the end we can transform. I mean, the physical sale in one of our boutiques. So, so the learning is that uh, you know, a digital and physical should work together. What what I understand, and again, this makes sense because, uh, of course, the blog to watch. But we live in a digital first world, but not a digital only world. People today are learning about brands and watches first online, but there is that real world element which is necessary. So it's 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 excellent to hear that you're you're also being aware of that. And I think that's important for so many brands because you're right. It's we live in a blended world. Now it's, start, it's time to sort of take that into consideration. But at the physical events, because it's so important. Is Ublo going to do anything different at the events? Maybe you know more products, more explanation. Um, I'm just curious because education and developing a close relationship with the customer is so crucial today. How are how are you going to take advantage of that new knowledge? Yes, I think Ublo, as you said, we are really a brand known for many events, for many partnerships, and what we have realized that maybe the art of fusion, which uh, Ublo represents is not explained enough and there were real manufacturers for instance who are verticalized manufacturers today that uh, we can have new materials, we do our own ceramics, we do our own movement so I think there is something that we want really to focus in is talking about the art of fusion and what is able with, with its manufacturer also in Switzerland. I know that a lot of watch brands over the pandemic were greeted with amazing commercial success, a lot of demand but at the same time Many brands had, for understandable reasons, production delays. What was it like Hublot during the pandemic in terms of uh, demand and then meeting that demand? Yeah, of course, during the pandemic, uh, we had to close our factory for two months. So I would say that last year, mechanically, uh, we have been closed more than uh, 25% of uh, even our network distribution and our boutiques have been closed for, depending on the countries, but at least two to three months. So, of course, last year has been a difficult year, I would say, for everyone, including Hublot. But uh, uh, what we have learned as well is that uh, we work more local versus, versus global. So that uh, all the markets where we have a strong local clientele that can be America, US, that can be China, of course, that can be Japan, that can be Eastern countries uh, and Middle East, for instance, we are doing very well. So uh, surprisingly, we are, we are really back to the numbers of 2019 which was a record year for Hublot. And of course, from the production point of view, we are facing issues because uh, to, 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 you know, of course we are verticalized, but we also depend, depend on suppliers like many other brands of our industry. And uh, to, to, yeah, to start the machine again, it, takes, it cannot be done from one month to another. It will take, you know, 18 to 24 months to really be back to full power, I would say. And today is the very first day of Dubai Watch Week 2021. And what is some of the vibe you're getting from the many people you've met with so far? I mean, a very good vibe. I think that people really want to have this kind of, of event, physical event, uh, to meet again, to talk, to have this human relationship, this emotion that you can give through uh, the relationship. And uh, yeah, I think Dubai, I would say, is really, I think, the, maybe the first market that came back very strong strongly after the pandemic so the, for them since already uh, many months they are doing incredibly well you know ricardo from Ublo, thank you so much thank you Ariel. always a pleasure one of the first things that i thought was very revealing about this interview was uh, ricardo's admission that dubai is simply their biggest market 
It is their biggest sales uh, AD uh, is in Dubai. What do we think that says about both Dubai and Hublot? Well, that is a very good observation and something that you can sort of pick out from these interviews because sometimes when you ask these watch brand CEOs questions, they tend to maybe be evasive or give answers that don't offer too much. But when you listen very closely, they tend to say things that are very revealing. And Ricardo is someone who is much more forthright than a lot of his colleagues. He's a veteran. He trained under Jean-Claude Biver and took over um, after him. Um, He is uh, someone who is known as being very good at execution, meaning he gets things done, which is a value in the space because a lot of people can't seem to get things done. what you what you find, which is very interesting about the show, is you do have the sort of story of two sides of the industry, these independents and these uh, large brands that are part of groups. Hublot is part of the LVMH luxury group. And the the things that are in the minds of the CEOs of the larger brands is things that are, are you might call sort of the boring stuff, uh, industrialization, human resources, manufacturing, supply chain, distribution, all these things related to the nuts and bolts of a company that has to sort of have a profit and loss statement and a cash flow. And for the independents, it's been, wow, we've seen so much interest, a lot of sales for now. These companies are naturally limited in the amount of watches they can make, meaning that there's only so much money they'll ever be able to to make because they can only sell so much. They're in a very different world than these big brands. And so you have the big brands using the last several months as a way of increasing efficiency and trying to focus on large future bets, um, maybe being uh, having the outward appearance of some dysfunctionality because of a lack of marketing initiatives in the current time. And the smaller brands, you know, being able to sweep up uh, with a lot of the attention, 18 months, 24 months, 36 months from now, I think the story is going to be very different. It's going to be back to a big brand world. Um, the independents are still going to be there, but less light is probably going to be on them. So I think that, you know, listening to Ricardo and other CEOs in, in this episode, that's just something to think about. In terms of the Middle East being a big market, it's it's not it's not a shock. It's these are not all watches sold just in Dubai or the UAE. Uh, the Middle East is a pretty large region. Hublot has done an excellent job over the years of having a firm establishment there. Um, a lot of fun products that appeal uh, to the region. I I think that you know for certain Western places like the UK and a little bit America, Hublot is seen as a bit sort of of a you know, a, a, a too playful of a brand, not too conservative enough. And, you know, Ricardo does mention some interesting things about lamenting a little bit the fact that people don't take the brand as seriously as they should for its orological merit, which is very real. They do a lot of fantastic things, a lot of in-house movements, the materials. Um, technically speaking, it's a fantastic brand, but they do sort of uh, play play loose uh, with marketing. They do a lot of things that may not appeal to all of the audiences. And what we find is Hublot is one of those brands that people's relationship with it begins far before they ever see any of the products. And sometimes they form opinions without ever really getting to know the products, which is sort of what I find is sort of a common phenomenon um, in our collector space. I mean, that was probably Jean-Claude Biver's one of his greatest contributions to Hublot was getting their name out in front of future watch buyers. Oh, yeah. You know, by sponsoring things like football uh, and other things that they did, rather than just focusing on people that are ready to buy watches now. And I think that's kind of what sometimes confuses collectors or the watch geeks, is that 
we look at Hublot and maybe don't take it as seriously as we should, but then can't figure out who's buying all the Hublots. But clearly, they're a real success story within uh, LVMH Group. And I think, as you said, there's a little bit within what Ricardo was saying, which is right. It's time for us to be taken seriously. We're a Swiss vertically integrated manufacturer and we know how to make watches and they do they've got some incredible movements some incredible tech so if you are in charge of Hublot for the next 24 months what are you doing in order to move it from a brand that is sometimes sneered at or looked askance by from you know the watch geeks to one that is like whoa wait a minute here this really is, you know... It's an easy answer. It's an easy answer. Um, what I would do is I would just flip their playbook a little bit. They do all these parties for celebrities and things like that. And I've been to some of these things. And it's actually very light on the product. I would take the same concept where they do these parties and they do them for watch collectors. Get people mm. to have a positive, fun time with the brand. Encourage them to see and wear the watches, there'll be people there that can explain them from a technical perspective. Do everything possible to make sure that the most influential collectors in any major city uh, attend these shows and, and have a good time with the brand and get to know the product. Because like you said, it's they have all the right stories. This stuff is very, very yeah. cool. Just do what they've done so well at with pop culture and just sort of realign their focus, even if it's just temporary for a few years, on the enthusiast community. I think that, that would be uh, a very effective use of, of their efforts. So look out for the spending time stroke, a blog to watch stroke, Hublot party happening near you soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we've talked to them about it before. It's I, Look, it's it's the best way to get people True. to understand your brand is invite them to a party and have your watches there. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of Hublot. I really like them. In preparation for this, I did have a good scroll through their website. And the one thing you observe is there's something for everybody. There are some pretty competitively priced luxury watches there. Now, obviously, it's still luxury and it's still expensive. But there's, you know, there's some good range there. And most importantly, you can get hold of them. You can actually walk into an Hublot boutique and buy an Hublot. And it wasn't always that way. The original Big Bang, after it came out in 2004, 2005, people don't know this, but it was one of those watches you couldn't get. And it was right. it was very popular. And, and I remember in about 2005, 2006, I met a collector who had just bought a Big Bang. And it was a very hot watch at the time. And he was very excited about it. And he sold a couple of watches for it. And he was very proud of it. And he showed it to me. And it was it was cool. And it was the first one at a time I'd ever seen one. And, you know, he'd sold off three or four watches to, to get it. And it was about, I think it was like about $12,000, $13,000 at the time. It was not cheap back then. Um, and it was, it, was, it was hot stuff. So they... They talk about like hard to get stuff like Hublot's, you know, been there, seen that, you know, they, they they get that. Yeah. No, great interview from Ricardo. And, you know, if he's anything like pushing forward the way that JCB did, then uh, I think you can expect. Uh, clearly, there's a motivation there to move in the direction of being taken really seriously for their horological chops. So it'll be interesting to see how they go about that in the next wee while. Who's next then, Ariel? The next person we're speaking to um, is also an employee of LVMH. This is um, Fabrizio uh, Buenamassa, and he is the designer, 
uh, of Bulgari's watches and does a lot of jewelry as well. He's someone I've known for many years there. And it's great because he's been at the brand for a long time. He's not, you know, he's not just someone who is like sort of a designer for hire. And these people, they do exist and they're great. He's sort of intrinsically linked to Bulgari in a lot of ways. And a lot of the work today um, is a reflection of his aesthetic. At the last Dubai Watch Week, he sort of had a handshake deal with MBNF that they would do a collaboration watch together. And now serendipitously, two years later, it comes out. So Fabrizio and I always have interesting conversations about design. And he's also, you know, a little bit involved in the sort of business side of the industry. And for him, it's great to come out and, you know, see see everything. It's sort of like a fashion show, see what people are wearing. So let's, let's hear what he has to say after uh, sort of just starting the show. Fabrizio Buonamassa Stigliani, and I'm here at the Dubai Watch Week 2021. Fabrizio, your latest watch is a collaboration with MBNF. Um, I did not see that one coming. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to work with them. The story was very easy. The, the, the watch was born here in Dubai uh, two years ago during the last uh, Dubai Watch Week. And Max uh, comes to me and uh, we start to discuss about this collaboration. The collaboration was born even before, four years ago, again during the Dubai Watch Week, but it was a bit earlier. So two years after, uh, Max comes again, Fabrizio, what do you think is possible now? And they say, um, Max, we will see, I think that we can do it. We start to make sketches, uh, we involved Antoine in the process uh, and we make it. It was very, very easy. We talk the same languages, uh, two completely different brands with a lot of elements in common. Both are darings, uh, are very, um, let me say, entrepreneurial in terms of spirits. We change a bit the rules in different segments. Uh, for Max, for sure, it's a three-dimensional piece of mechanical art. For us, it's the art of miniaturization. We are very well known for the high jewelry products. So the collaboration was uh, was really, really easy. You are the designer of Bulgari timepieces. And of course, before you created this women's watch, you wanted to see the last thing that MBNF did, which was with Boucheron uh, years ago. Um, obviously, you had to make something distinct. What were your initial thoughts when you took a look at their Boucheron collaboration? And what did you know that you wanted to do differently as both? But honestly, Ariel, I didn't... Uh, yes, it's something that I know, but it was not in our process. Uh, at the beginning, the idea was to play with a female watch. So when I see the flying tee, I say, for us, it's a great opportunity because under this dome, we can put a lot of things. And we are a bit frustrated because you know that we are very well known for big stones, but we cannot use it in our watches. So when we have seen this uh, this amazing dome with this vertical flank to beyond, I discuss it immediately with Max and I say, I would love to have something around. And I immediately start to make the sketches and it was during the first lockdown. So we have had our first meeting after the discussion in Dubai to Zoom. And I start to make sketches and I say, Max, this is the idea that I had. And I show it to Max through the video. And Max say, okay, for us it's great because we found the perfect way to combine the different soul of two different companies. Max is very well known again for this three-dimensional movement and we are very well known for these amazing stones. And flat movements. Exactly. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it was really, really funny. 
we had a great pleasure to work together, even with these two teams uh, made for development process from BMEF and uh, our development process. It was really, really easy, I'll tell you. We're here at Dubai Watch Week 2021, which is, I don't know about you, but my first international trip, you know, post-pandemic. What's the vibe like, in your opinion, now, the first day of the show? Uh, since the beginning, this is my fourth uh, Dubai Watch Week. It's my, let me say, one of my favorite events in watchmaking. It's a completely different uh, environment. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you have the panels, you have a lot of discussions around the watchmaking industry about the trends, uh, the markets, uh, uh, different topics. So this is, as a creative person, for me, it's very interesting. We don't talk here, like in other fairs, about sales, about uh, market share, just uh, we talk about uh, our passions with our clients. And after this, this uh, pandemic moment, uh, lockdowns around the world, is the first time after the Geneva watch days and uh, sorry, the Geneva Grand Prix de Rogerie and even the only watch auction that we are all, uh, all together. And it is wonderful to be all together. Now, yes. as a designer, the last two years have changed the world. And of course, as a designer, you need to respond to it. How, if at all, is your job as a designer going to change in terms of what inspires you or what you feel that people want to see as beauty and elegance and luxury in a post-pandemic world? It's, a, it's a just a different opportunity. As a designer, I have, I have, to, be, I have to be able to catch the hidden needs of the market. And the taste changing very fast today. The economical situation changing very fast. So the pandemic, uh, uh, it's a very sad moment for everyone. We developed many watches during the pandemic, even the MBNF and Bulgari watch. We developed our aluminum during the first lockdown. So give us a lot of energy. It was very sad from a certain point of view. It was with a lot of energy on the other point of view because you know that in a certain moment these situations go out and you you can rise again and you can you can show all your ideas and this moment it's very interesting because you have a lot of new energy it's like a rebirth after the pandemic and after the lockdown it's still with us is is not still out but again, you start to see a certain, a certain energy. And Fabrizio, do you have any personal goals this week at Dubai Watch Week? Uh, to meet a lot of people and to again uh, talk about our passions uh, with a lot of friends uh, and as you have seen before, with a lot of clients. <laughs> this is uh, for me the most important uh, element of the Dubai Watch Week. Fabrizio, thank you so much. Thank you so much, it was a pleasure. Good stuff. That was good to hear from uh, Bulgari. So, just tell me, is is Fabrizio? Is he a, a watch designer? Like, is he a watchmaker, or is he like a fashion designer, stroke jewelry designer, a jeweler type thing? It, what is actually question. his background? Um, Do you know, most of these people have a design background, sort of like industrial design, that is not specifically related to watches that ends up being about watches the different backgrounds could be fashion usually it's automotive architecture is one of them and they they sort of fall into watch design accidentally and it's sort of its own little area there's not a lot of watch design schools he is 
um, you know, a visual designer. He draws stuff out first and then, you know, works with the technical team. So he's not a watchmaker, but he's very much um, a designer. Um, the Octo Collection, which began as this Gerald Genta piece, which transformed, you know, drastically under Fabrizio, um, was really his, his baby that he's done a lot of stuff on. He loves doing highly flamboyant women's watches that are super cool, fantastic. Um, and what he did is he took this concept that Bulgari has done before, would take these very large gems and just throw them into women's jewelry and just throw them into a watch dial. And that was the limited <laughs> edition watch uh, that they did in collaboration with MBNF. An idea that they had. Oh, go ahead. Is Fabrizio one of these guys that comes along having had a great idea about how, what he wants the design to be and then all the engineers look at him going, Fab, Fabrizio, you just can't do that. And then he goes, he cracks the whip and then goes, yes, you will. You will design me the thinnest no, automatic chronograph. No, that's not him at all. He's much more of a relaxed personality. Um, the way that they work there is that it's really run by the engineers. And so the movement makers are who, who begin it. And then he has to sort of design around the movement and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think that there are instances where you say, you know, it, it's really going to be engineer run because you allow a designer with a mechanical mm -hmm. watch to just put hands wherever they want and stuff like that. The engineers would, would choke them. So <laughs> what you need to have is sort of a participation yes. <laughs> between the two. So, um, he, you know, he has more design constraints than maybe, you know, <laughs> uh, opportunities, but, you know, they work with what they have and he creates a very refined product. So this watch, which was probably the, one of the biggest talking points, I think it was launched just before Dubai Watch Week rather than actually being launched there, but I might be wrong, was obviously the MBNF Bulgari Legacy machine flying to Allegra. Blimey, the Swiss watch industry continuing with their habit <laughs> of incredibly long watch names. This watch confuses me slightly because MBNF... Well, Max is reasonably well known for saying, like, we're, we, we're not trying to grow this business into being, you know, he's a, clearly a bit of a control freak and likes to be able to okay. be across everything. So is not looking for MBNF to just grow 10% per year forever and ever and ever and become a, you know, billion dollar company or whatever, a hundred million dollar company. But that he's clearly had to, uh, Max has clearly had to give away quite a lot of control of this to Fabrizio. And Fabrizio has clearly just gone to town going, blimey, I normally have to design stuff featuring really, really thin movements and there's just no space to to exercise my jewellery passion. Whereas Max has basically provided him with this dome with which to just encrust with as much as he can get on it in whatever design he fancies. I mean, it's clearly a, a, a work of passion between both of them. I'm just not entirely sure what it does for either either brand, because there's not a lot of them. It's not something that MBNF is famous for. Is was this a very specific watch to a particular clientele? Do you think in Dubai? I think the mandate was to create an MBNF watch that looked like it could live in the world of fabulous Bulgari jewelry. And if you're not intimately aware of the style of fabulous Bulgari jewelry, a watch like this might not make a lot of sense to you, which I think is what's happening right now. 
But but like I said, they are known for taking these very large stones and building aesthetics around them. And so if you had some of their more lavish bracelets and necklaces and, and things like that and put this watch with it, it wouldn't look out of place. And I think that that's what they were trying to do. Remember, these are highly limited products. MB&F is not going to sort of reinvent the wheel for, for a, a small set of pieces like this. You know, Bulgari... They don't want to see this as them making a watch because Bulgari makes watches. So they want to see this as maybe making some type of a design collaboration with him as, as you know, as a right. jewelry designer. So there's all these weird nuances and politics which get in the way of it being like the ultimate, you know, cool guy, you know, Bulgari times MBNF, which would be awesome. This was something special. It was a, an experiment. And I think that at the end of the day, it shows that if you know how to play nice as Max does, these big groups are willing to play ball, um, which is almost a sweet thing because so often the big groups, other groups perhaps, are known for not liking to play well with others. And so I think that there's a, like I said, a, 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 an attractive charm to the, the, the coolness of their working relationship. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lovely watch. And did I say it, $185,000, this seems actually quite a good deal. <laughs> Now, maybe it's just because I don't understand a lot about jewellery, but I look at this and go, It's That's a very a lot of spectacular watch. We will have a hands-on of it coming soon. It's, again, a ladies' watch, so not for me. But if you are the target demographic, you're going to enjoy this watch. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, I think there is, as you say, an extent to which you need to understand about gems to really understand this watch. As you say, it's a jewellery piece framed in a watch rather than a watch that's just been bejeweled. Where do you think Bulgari currently sit in the watch world? I mean, they're known for, obviously, the Octofinissimo, the Bulgari Bulgari, they have just started bringing back with the aluminium cases and the GMTs, which I particularly like. But where do you see them going? They've They've done a very good job of saturating the collector market with the Octo. We were part of the initial process of doing them doing that several years ago, where we had to sort of help everyone recognize that Bulgari was a serious brand with a lot of in-house components, like their movements and their dials and stuff like that. And it was very highly successful. So amongst enthusiasts, you have more and more people wearing Bulgari. A colleague of mine here in Los Angeles, who is a mainstream watch lover, just got uh, an Octo uh, Chronograph GMT, which is a really cool watch. And this is someone who basically would only wear Rolex before and, you know, had a little bit of taste outside the box. But you starting to see things like that normalizing into mainstream luxury culture. And that's fantastic for Bulgari. That's exactly what they want. But there's also this challenge where they have to make a lot of hits happen, right? They can't just have the Octo. They want to have other lines. And so they're going to rally around the Octo as much as they can and always try to make other successes happen. Again, this is an LVMH owned company mm. so growth is always on their mind um i think that bulgari is in a very good spot right now um i i think that there's always room to improve in in a lot of ways it's a company that could be more organized and, and always have you know uh, more consistent products and things like that in terms of the release schedules but i think that you know if you're someone that wants a nice mainstream everyday luxury watch with some good personality it's almost impossible not to strongly consider bulgari bulgari at this point no, I, I have tried on the Octophysical several times. Really like the, the stainless steel 
version of that uh, particular watch. So I'm beginning to realise as we go through these interviews that what we've actually done is we've put all of the difficult pronunciations of both brands and CEOs into the one episode. So I'm going to let you tell me how to produce... I can pronounce his first name, which is Patrick. And uh, Ulysses Nardan and Girard Perigo, I can just about manage. Patrick Pernod, yes, the CEO of both the brands. Uh, <laughs> again, so now we're talking about someone who is part of the Caring Group, a yeah. different conglomerate, a little bit smaller than LVMH, but they, you know, they have Gucci, which is a very powerful brand. Um, and he has been at the helm of both of these. I've known Patrick for a number of years, saw him at the Dubai Watch Week in 2019 that happened before this. And he and I um, had an interesting conversation um, while at the show that you're going to hear in a second. And I think one of the interesting things leading into this is there had been rumors that Caring was interested in, in selling off um, Gerard Perigo and Ulysses Nardon. Um, and this was... Can we raise, can we raise, can we raise the money, do you think? Right, it's it sounds like an attractive you. thing. It does sound an attractive thing, I have to say. So, so he is in the strange position where the parents of the company may want to sell it. This puts him in an awkward situation professionally. Mm -hmm. His success is obviously tied to the success of the brand, and so you know it's not just a sort of routine, you know, CEO interview. You know, there, there's a lot of risks that these people take professionally every single time they, they, you know, they talk to the media. And it's it's good to sort of see that Patrick ha is in good spirits and chatting, things like that. The Both of the brands are doing very attractive things. You know, Gerard Perigot just started with Aston Martin and Ulysses Nardon has all these, you know, crazy products and partnerships and things they got going on. So, it, it, you know, the brands aren't exactly, you know, flailing. Okay, so let's hear from Patrick from Ulysses Nardan and Girard Perigo. So I'm here with the CEO of Ulysses Nardan and Girard Perigo, Mr. Patrick Pernod. Patrick, thanks for chatting with me. Yeah, great, great seeing you here. It has been a little while since I've seen you, but I distinctly remember chatting with you at the last Dubai Watch Week in, in 2019, and here we are in 2021. Um, what is different for you emotionally about being at this show versus the one two years ago? Well, this one is, I mean, first, it's a pleasure to see you again. And after two years coming back to Dubai. Um, so we were very fortunate because, I mean, from Europe, we're able to come very often to Dubai. And, and Dubai really, I mean, is growing and growing as a year on the year, on the map of the year, of the top look, uh, top um, destination for watch uh, lovers. Um, and really, how we feel is like this year, this is going to be the year, the largest by far uh, physical show that's going to be happening. There was Shanghai uh, earlier on this year, and Dubai is going to be really big. So this is the opportunity for you to meet with colleagues and clients and everyone, not just from the Dubai region, but really all around the world. Oh, for sure. I mean, I guess, I mean, in the case of GR Perigo or Lisnada, we're launching some global, I mean, some novelties here. I mean, the same way we do it in another major watch fair. And that's exciting to do that because it hasn't been an opportunity for a while. Um, you did a couple of virtual meetings that were exciting, but what's different for you about these virtual launches versus doing it in person? So basically here, what's happening, we're meeting obviously the press, we're meeting also some of our clients, some of the retailers, but most importantly, we're meeting also some watch collectors and we're able to explain what we're doing and we're able to create also that touch and feel um, uh, amazing experience which is so necessary and needed for all of us. 
one thing that a lot of CEOs talk about when they go to these shows is they get a pulse of the market, they get to talk to collectors. What are some of your personal goals for information and knowledge that you're trying to gather this week? We always gather a lot of um, feedback and information from uh, some of the UDs down all over or GRPG all over when we go to some fairs. I guess here, um, I guess the, the organiz organizer here have managed to put together a great experience but also an atmosphere which encourages everyone to be super open. It's very relaxed as well. It's super professional, but also relaxed. It's sort of informal and professional, exactly who we are as brands. And out of the two brands you listen to right now, Gerard Perigot, which would you say is um, a little bit more popular in this specific Middle East region? So here, um, I mean, this is an important time, I mean, for both brands. I mean, especially in terms of distribution, because we work with a city key. Uh, family here in Dubai and in the UAE, and we're starting as well to do it with Go. So, so I mean, both brands now have a very interesting momentum in a region, and and I guess they are, they just uh, have a different type of message and addressing different type of watch collectors. But it's not unusual for me to see some collectors that have either or that have both Udistan or Go. What type of information do you get that helps you make decisions about product? What to make? what not to make, uh, maybe various types of concepts and things like that. How do you use opportunities like this to help the, the product development machine? Uh, yeah, I, I, I guess, I mean, we are, you know, uh, the most important thing in a creative right, process is you need to have a certain level of belief and, and some convictions. Uh, otherwise, creativity becomes... It's risk. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you, and you lose it. So you have to balance this with all obviously listening to what the, the, the watch lovers uh, tell you and, and also what are, the, what are the trends we believe are in the market. But to be honest, I think we really strive to make sure that our vision is carried over a long period of time and not influenced by some short-term trends. Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so yet another interview whereby... Now, okay, I suppose it's like if you're standing in Dubai and somebody asks you how important is the marketplace in Dubai, you're obviously going to answer, yeah, it's really important. But I think you do genuinely get the impression that for these brands and the two we've just interviewed, Dubai really is a key market. It really is the place where everything crosses at the moment. Is there inherent stability in the Dubai marketplace that there isn't or hasn't been in the Chinese marketplace where such a large number of these brands were dependent on doing big numbers? To has, has there been a shift, a notable shift from investing in China and the new middle class over there? Can you recognise from your experience in dealing or in speaking to the brands about where their new market focuses, that actually a lot of them are saying, yeah, China's great, a billion people, great marketplace, you know, the States is good but flat, Europe is just doing what Europe always does, actually Dubai, it's where everybody crosses now, anyone that goes to Dubai on holiday is going there because they've got a bit of money to spend, it's not a cheap destination by any stretch of the imagination, and it's got a stable environment, it's sunny, it's actually just a nice place to do business. Do they just like going there because actually it's just fun? Switzerland for skiing and Dubai for the sunshine. 
Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in your question. I'm gonna sort of approach it from this angle. Let's consider that in this era just ended, but being a sort of watch, a luxury watch brand CEO was a very imperialistic job for a while. It was all about finding new markets and conquering them and growth and attack and to destabilize the, the com competition and always about finding sort of like new fertile ground to, to, go, to go graze. Now, in a world where, where there isn't a lot of new money regions and things like that, they have to retreat and go back to being diplomats as opposed to um, more imperialists. Hmm. And as diplomats, they now have to go back to regions which they've done business in before, uh, Europe, <laughs> United States, Middle East, which are all pretty, you know, at this point, well-established in markets, and figure out how to you know, right their wrongs and, and do business in the markets because they left a lot of these markets because those markets also wanted to share in the profits. And the Middle East is a region where if you don't have a strong local distributor, you're not going to do business. It'll be blocked. The Siddiqui family, which organizes Dubai Watch Week and is the most powerful uh, retail in the region, isn't just powerful from an economic perspective. Um, they will make or break you in the market. Mm -hmm. um, if you are friendly with them and they carry your watches, they can go very, very far in, in doing exposure in front of their clients and recommending it. Watch brands didn't like that they had to sort of do business with these, you know, local um, constituencies of, of vested interests like watch retailers. <laughs> but they have to share. And so now we sort of go back to the sharing economy, which is very healthy. But markets, you know, like Europe and the United States and the Middle East, in some ways have to be reestablished. Um, there are rivalries. There are certain groups that did not show up at Dubai Watch Week. This is not the conversation for that, but there's very real political friction that occurs right now. LVMH and Caring Group uh, are in the good graces of the Siddiqui family, and for good reason. They've been very good partners with one another, and the Siddiqui's are a very, very fair group, very, very fair organization. Um, they just demand to, you know, effective sharing and proper sharing, and I, 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 who can disagree with that? Yeah. So I think that that's sort of the, the situation for these leaders. So Mr. Pruneau and these other CEOs, they showed up in Dubai. They had to be there the entire week. You know, they had to meet with the public. They didn't have some like fancy booth in the back with an office like it used to be in Basel where they used to get to feel like a king. Now they're just right there. They have like a, a chair, okay, like a high chair. That's what they got. It's like, oh, hey, CEO. And, you know, some guy off the street is like, oh, you're the guy from that. I have a grandfather. And then you're roped into some conversation for 20 minutes. That was a whole week of this. Uh -huh. But they come out, and, and I think they come out because they recognize – it's the era of diplomacy. Uh, in the markets that you want to do well in, you have to go there and take care of the needs of the market and be friendly. And I think that CEOs like Patrick um, understand this implicitly. And were there some CEOs clearly there that were completely out of their comfort zone? Um, Was there anyone obviously a rabbit in the headlights? I'll not ask you to name them, unless you fancy it, because I make good content. But uh, <laughs> were, there, were there CEOs there that were like, yeah, this is not... I'm more comfortable behind my big oak desk. This was not that type of event. This is a very mature event with a highly curated list of guests and brands and things like that. Mm -hmm. Most of these brands have been to Dubai Watch Week before. The new ones, you know, they're veterans of these shows and things like that. I hear what you're saying, and those individuals do exist, 
but let's just say they they were probably more commonly represented at some of the brands that did not show up there at all. Right. Okay. So USC's Nardan and Girard Perigo are huh, how would you consider them as brands? I mean, UN. Well, actually, one question about USC's Nardan. Is it just my imagination, or have they stopped talking about the freak? Uh, they've they've only talked about the freak more. The freak you is think? a big deal. Yeah, I just it just doesn't seem. Uh, it's seems a to whole a lot pillar. Of, yeah, but there seems to be a lot of focus on their dive line in maybe the last eighteen months during. Because that's what they COVID. wanted to push. I yeah. mean, again, brands are trying to be more strategic with marketing. Mm-hmm. What you're identifying is that they're reaching you, and you remember their dive watches in the marine, and you don't remember the freaks. Um, uh. But I can tell you the freak has been very, very popular. It's actually sometimes so popular that they feel that they don't need to market it. They actually uh-huh. market the things that they want to push. And so um, the free collection has been you know, uh, one, of, one of the better sellers for Ulysses and Ardant. The problem is you have a company who actually relied very, very heavily on Russia. Right. And I don't know how all the economics works, but I know that they it's proven more difficult to do business in Russia, and there's l- less buying power in Russia, mm-hmm. um, especially due to the pandemic. So Ulysses Nardan is a brand that has to find n- new buyers, sort of use the same formula, maybe some different designs to, to enter new audiences. And Gerard Perigo, along with Ulysses Nardan, both have incredible histories, incredible histories, just waiting for the right creative director, waiting for the right, you know, um, brilliant marketers behind it. So these are these are jewels as brands that, you know, really just require the right uh, leadership and, of course, investment to get them running. So it turns out I've actually been marketed to and it's worked, is really yes, what you're saying. Yes, yes, imagine yeah, that. Yeah. Imagine that. Imagine marketing worked. Gerard Perico is an interesting brand. It seemed to be suffering from a bit of an identity crisis, but it seems to have got over it. I think the Laureato is now so recognisable as its own thing rather than the original kind of snipey, oh yeah, it just looks like an AP. It's actually developed its own identity. I mean, I love Laureate, it's a fantastic watch and Gerard Perigo have such high horology chops. Let me let me say something. There's a statement that is set out there and again, we're, we're shifting from sort of journalism right now to just collector chat. Blah, blah, blah looks like a Royal Oak. Okay, so what? Yep. If you get over the fact that it might look like something else in some superficial way or might try to be something else, so what? You know, just like a Porsche 911, uh, you know, a Ferrari is trying to be a fast car. Is that a, you know, so so two people can't aspire to be the same thing? Like, if, if, if I, I've gotten over that, I think a lot of people are able to get over that. Originality is incredibly important. I, I get that. With that said... You know, multiple people trying to achieve the same result. That's okay. That's just that's just the marketplace. Yeah, I think what's happened though is that GP has managed to move from being seen as incorrectly as a copycat, so that if you're wearing a, a, a Girard Perigo Laureato rather than a, a Royal Oak, folk would say, "Oh, well, it's because you couldn't get the Royal Oak." Whereas actually now, folk are genuinely interested. Oh, Laureato, I'd like to. You know, they want to see it for its own value rather than, as you say, comparing. I think it's come out of that cloud. Yeah. So I think the GP and Ulysses Nardan are kind of sitting there, as you say, have caring, maybe just they want rid of it. So it's not, you know, Patrick's doing a great job, but he's kind of fighting against the tide. And as you say, it just needs someone to come in, an owner who 
who just goes, these are two amazing brands with amazing history and the ability to do amazing things. Let's take them to the next level. We, we don't necessarily know what Caring's ultimate plans are. Sometimes for strategic purposes, a company might announce one of its assets for sale just to see what happens. Yep. Plans might change. Things are very chaotic right now. Mm. What we've seen, something yep. very, very interesting. There's been a lot of companies have gone out of business or their ownership or whatever has been threatened during the pandemic. And, and every single time when a company has actually gone out of business, what we've seen is somebody sweep it up. Yep. So while there are companies failing these days, there's a huge volume of buying activity. I don't think there's going to be a lot of otherwise good companies in the watch space that will go out of business and not find a good buyer. So I think a Ulysses Nardon and a Gerard Perigo, if for whatever reason, Caring really wanted to get out, get out of them, that could be a blessing in disguise. Yeah. Well, we saw that in the last episode of the first show for Dubai Watch Week with HYT and Davide Serato. Okay, okay, let's move on from the big brands and start talking about some smaller, in what we call, well, I suppose, nomenclature-wise, it's called independent brands. Define that however you may. So, Ariel, who are we hearing from first? And I'm getting you to introduce it so that I don't butcher the pronunciation of the name. Right, so we're speaking to Rexep Rexepi. Um, and Recep was someone who was one of the talented young watchmakers at a company called BNB Concept. If you're just getting into watches now, you will have absolutely no idea what BNB Concept is, <laughs> but I recommend you do some research and learn about. Google is your friend. When they went out of business, Jean-Claude Biver purchased much of the assets and the, the founder of it, Matthias Boutet, went over Dublo, which I believe he still is at. Recep was one of his sort of young underling watchmakers, and he went off to found Acrivia. He went independent immediately, extremely young age, early 20s, and he's been doing that ever since. So Acrivia, and now he has some watches with the Recep Recepi name right on the dial. Now that's, you know, that's what he does now. Um, and I've known him for a number of years. I've been to his workspace in Geneva. He is, you know, he's a hustler. And what people don't necessarily understand is they put this sort of elitist, sort of luxury, highbrow connotation of watchmakers. But these people are extremely hardworking. They're basically cowboys, right? Because they have to do so many different things at the same time, wrangling all this stuff, taking enormous personal risk, working really, really hard. It's, it's not really glamorous work most of the time until years later, you know, some some rich guy comes and says, "Hey, I love your work. Can I buy some more of it?" Okay, great. You know, you've made it, um, and that's and that's and that's good. So these people have a lot of hustle, but they have to very carefully weigh their time between how they work and and whether they're producing products. So it'd be very interesting. You know, it was interesting for me to hear from Recep about what he did uh, during the pandemic and what it was like to be back at uh, Dubai Watch Week. Hello, my name is Recep Rajepi. I'm here in Dubai for Dubai Watch Week 2021. And Recep, your brand is Acrivia, which is one of the independents that has really gotten a lot of attention over the years, and, and well-deserved because you're a master watchmaker, but also a master at, at finishing. Um, how often have you traveled since the pandemic? 
Um, you know, it was the first time. Was quite. Um, we was all we was afraid about it, but uh, honestly, uh, it was good because we don't travel. We we was happy because nobody really came to the workshop, so we can be concentrated on that. You finally got to work for once, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, but we are really happy. Uh, we can work. We can be concentrated in uh, evolving. And uh, yes, it's that you know we we start now to doing our case in house. With really. Mr. Hagman, yeah. And starting already some components. So. That's really good. It's a good evolution. Tell me a little bit about the struggle you have as a watchmaker between actually sitting at the bench and doing work and all the other things which are important. Meeting with clients, doing business development, handling your team. How do you juggle those things while still being a watchmaker? You know, for me, I think uh, first thing I'm passionate about that. So I think this is the most important and when you're passionate, you know what you want to do and uh, for myself, I want to do watches and I want to stay at my bench. So the things you the, the, the things you want really uh, you don't like to do uh, with years and with a little more experience you know this kind of thing you don't want to do so you need to find somebody who can help for doing that but uh, you will doing a little more hours in your job because you wake up a little more early and you finish a little more late uh, but that's part of the independent uh, life you know uh, so if you want to work more at bench you need to wake up early <laughs> <laughs> to to be very disciplinated disciplinated because you know I think uh, you have many many things to do in your day but sometimes you realize you can do it this and you just say okay I will finish something and when you finish you will take care of that uh, this is why I think we are not the best maybe in communication or responding, but, uh, you know, we are watchmakers. Well, as ironic as it is, they don't teach you time management at watchmaking school, right? Yeah, no, no, not really, not really. And uh, yeah, for, for me, you know, my day and this is my objective and my challenge is really watches. So I come, I want to create something, I want to do my decoration, finish my watch. And this is my priority, honestly. But now with years, like I say, we have more people and they can help us for doing other, other stuff. One of the most popular things that I've been hearing lately is how excited people are about the independent brands. Privia, of course, is one of those independent brands. Have you felt an increase in attention or business um, because of that larger interest in independent brands that's happening right now? Yeah, I think since since two years we have a little more uh, people are interested on, on our watches. But uh, honesty for us was since 2017 uh, was really different. We we became uh, in 2017 we was uh, at one point we was not able to respond to the demand. So, but agree with you since uh, one year and a half I think we became more and more bigger. Uh, the demand is more and more bigger. Uh, I don't know how, how we can. I don't know what, what I can say. I think we don't doing that much watches. We're trying to do the best. We have two hands. And uh, yeah. So tell me a little bit about Dubai Watch Week. Why is coming to Dubai important for Crivia? Yeah, we have, uh, we, have uh, we are represented there by, by Siddiqui and Son. And uh, you know, it's, um, I think uh, you have many of collectors there. They appreciate the knowing about watches and we want to be there because uh, it's important also to showing. Uh, like uh, you know we don't doing that much watches so we're trying to bring one or two to showing to to trying to to explain more so yeah and what do you want to learn this week a lot of these people you haven't seen for a couple of years now and you're obviously here to talk with people and learn information 
What are you trying to learn from the guests and the colleagues you haven't seen in a long time here at Dubai Watch Week 2021? I think I think it's interesting to to take care of, of people you knowing and to, uh, trying to learn understand what uh, what was the challenges during this last uh, few years, and uh, you know we can learn each other. Maybe they find a better solution for doing this or communication or you know we are a small group of independent of brands and uh, it's close because we can talk with everybody and I think it's the best way to 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 evolve in in, in, the, in the industry. Richard, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Okay, I think the thing that's come from that interview, I really enjoyed that actually, was he just likes being a watchmaker, really, doesn't he? If, if, if he could just sit there and make watches and employ people to do all the other things that need done in order to actually sell watches, then he would just do that. But obviously as a small business... He's still having to do quite a lot of other things himself, although obviously COVID has meant that he has got to hide behind his watchmaking bench and just uh, crack on with it. Is Acrivia one of your kind of top independent brands that you admire? It's, It's up there. He is technically a very good watchmaker. His finishing is very, very fine. He knows how to make beautiful things. You know, if I had a bunch of money sitting around and someone said, Ariel, you can use this to go make a custom watch, he'd be on a very short list of people that I would call. Because right, we've, ha- we've had this conversation offline about uh, your Grail watch, and it was always the way you've described it is, I don't really have one. If I had the money, I would just go and make a one-off with somebody. So he'd be on your list. Yeah, and, and it's because he makes really nice watches. There are people who have an elite status such as him that are fawned over by, by the community whose work I don't like as much. Um, so I wouldn't say that about all the people, but he is, you know, he's the real deal. You're buying his effort. You're buying his labor. You know, he really cares about what he does. His opinion is, as someone who, you know, runs a small business, works super hard, um, has specifically said, I don't want the headaches of a corporate lifestyle because it's politics even though sometimes you work you work less hard so he is again an independent because he chooses that lifestyle it is a it is a choice and again that's sort of why i said like a cowboy like yeah he has to live a bit dangerously a bit naturally uh, a bit without rules or else he wouldn't be happy and again i'm a little bit like that so i i get it and we have to admire these people and obviously he's been excited about the interest in independent brands particularly during covid what do you think his ambition is and where do you think the market now moves you said earlier on in the show about you know is it just going to come back full circle and it's just all going to be about the big brands 24 months from now where do you see the ambition with a crivia going into the future He's obviously excited about the press and attention that his brand has got during lockdown. Obviously, Dubai has been a big influence. There's lots of independent collectors. If Dubai is leading the marketplace, then the marketplace is saying, give me independent brands. How does he respond to the demand? Does he end up going more corporate eventually? He seems to have the ambition to employ people to do more specific jobs within the organization. So he can focus on watches, you know, is he going to stay as a small brand or is he going to go down the kind of FP Jure route and, you know, build and build and build? What do you think his ambition is? It's a very good question. 
I'm not sure that there's an answer that he has a strategy. I think that him and his colleagues are very aware that there's dangerous business decisions they can make that can end them because yeah. it's happened to so many. So they're very cautious, but they know that sitting still is bad. It's sort of a constant state of being nervous, right? Because you don't know if you're doing enough. You don't know if you're doing the right things. There's no model. You know, you look at people like F.P. Jorn, who might be your heroes. Might You might say, I don't want to be like that guy. And that's that's kind of weird because it's you, know, you can't from the outside know how someone would make that distinction. He appears to be successful. So they all have their own idea of what success success looks like. And the, re the reality is there needs to be a market for their products. The more there is demand, the more they'll get orders and be able to fund whatever lifestyle that is they want. And they know implicitly, and this is sort of the last thing I'll say about it, they know implicitly that their success tends to be tied to a stable mainstream luxury watch industry. So when everything from the Rolexes to the Bulgaris appear to be doing well and appear to have some stability, the independents have a sort of sector within which they can thrive. When things are really, really bad for the big guys and there's instability, which is sort of what's going on right now, it's scary, really, really scary to these independents because they know that they rely on the sales and distribution and marketing infrastructure and shows that they could themselves never pay for. Like Dubai Watch Week is paid for by a family that owns uh, watch retailers, and most of the money comes from the you know the big grants that people know about. None of this would be going on. There wouldn't be a show about luxury watches if the big guys weren't there. And yeah. so I think that that's sort of the underlying fear they have is that too many big groups pull out, there won't be enough of an industry to help them find customers. Okay, okay. so we move on from Acrivia, which is very much an independent brand driven by the guy that owns it, the guy that works on the watches, to a brand that would have been considered independent, but maybe wouldn't have been quite as much associated with an individual watchmaker, but has now had a significant financial investment from an organisation that is far from independent, that, well, that makes David Thune far from independent. Yes, I've given the clue away, given it away. We're going to talk to Pierre Jacques or Ariel's talk to Pierre Jacques from De Bethune. So just before we run this interview, because I think this may be an important scene setter, Ariel, what is Pierre's background? I don't know all the things that he's done, but as long as I've known him, which has been most of my time in the watch industry, he's been associated with De Bethune. He has had other jobs, but he's left and come back. Um, he is just, I don't know, he and, and, and you know, the the... The watchmakers there, you know, they, they get along with him. He is so remarkably open sometimes, you know, such as some of the interesting things that uh, that he'll say. Uh, but he, you know, he is an interesting archetype. You know, he's, he's sort of very, you know, sort of Swiss French in his mannerisms. Uh -huh. And he, you know, is a relationship builder. He's, you know, good at representing this fine complicated highly exotic engineering product and you know this is a brand whose watches are very distinctive looking technically inventive i think that's the best way of saying it they're they they create yeah. things uh, that that stimulate the imagination and they're they're very much they have a strong personality very much sort of uh, an italian 
sense of personality as opposed to maybe a Swiss or, or, or French sense of personality. So I think that's sort of, you know, that's about the Debentum brand and what they're good, what they're sort of known for. The, the recent history, the politics, the ownership. I mean, again, I could literally dedicate an entire show to using Debentun as a case study to talk about interesting phenomena in the watch industry. For example, United States watch distribution. Yeah. So um, that's sort of beyond the scope of this, but this yeah. is as someone who has a strong backing with strong distribution in the United States, a very cool, interesting, independent watch brand. Uh, I still call it independent because it's really run by the the people that, that have the ideas and that like the watches. Yes. Um, and But again, it's own weird flavor. Cool, so that special edition will be coming in 2022. Right, let's get on and hear the interview with uh, Pierre. Hi, I'm Pierre Jacques, CEO of Debetune. We are here at uh, Dubai Watch Week 2021. Pierre, thank you so much for speaking to me. I am a big fan of Debentune, and I know you are as well. Uh, you put a lot of heart and soul into the brand. Um, how do you feel after a bit of a hiatus, finally being back at a watch trade show? Um, so, we are feeling great to, to be back uh, uh, in one of the most uh, um, sexy and interesting uh, uh, trade show uh, around the world. Dubai Watch Week is an amazing format where you really feel a passion uh, behind. And it's not uh, only about business, but here is really a crossroad where you can meet press, you can meet collector, and you can meet also all your your colleague, all the other brand. So it's really an amazing platform to be. And uh, after these two years of, uh, uh, I say, a uh, uh, different journey, <laughs> this one is really uh, is the re- uh, the reward for two two years of uh, uh, of uh, forced holiday. Forced holiday. I agree yeah. with you. And speaking of the Dubai and Middle East region, how important is this region in terms of sales for the Debitum brand? Oh, I think it's a region that's become more and more important. Uh, we really can see the, uh, the, that the interest for independent watchmaker really grow uh, during these uh, past uh, uh, years. I'd say uh, this, during these past six years. Uh, from today, is really a lake of difference. You can see, you remember probably, you've been here two years ago. You can see that's probably uh, two times more people and uh, every booth are, are busy with uh, uh, people uh, asking to, to look um, watches, try the watches, and it's really, really changing. So every brand here has a complicated story that takes a long time to understand, especially when it comes to the uh, USP, as they say, of the products. What's your elevator pitch for people uh, for Debentune when you have just a quick moment to explain the brand to them? What do you say? Um, you know, it's very easy. What I say that uh, the between is really the um, the con- uh, the watchmaking art in 21st century is a crossroad between uh, the tradition and the innovation. It isn't only world. If you look at the between, if you touch the between, and you look inside, you can really feel uh, how it's made. Uh, that's really made by the uh, uh, classical or ancient technique. But really, in terms of design and innovation, we are in the 21st, even in the 22nd century. 
in addition to coming here and educating people about the Debentune brand, you as a CEO need to learn about the market, you need to learn about the consumer. What are some of your educational goals personally here at Dubai Watch Week 2021? Oh, what is interesting for me from education, of course, is, uh, is the occasion to, to watch, uh, you know, and to di discover um, the, the, produ the product and uh, the watch uh, that my colleague, say colleague, uh, I producing is also uh, a platform when I, I can meet uh, many uh, passionate that they, they know even much more than me uh, about uh, watch and technique and also per personally uh, um, I try to, to progress uh, myself, uh, just, uh, you know, I, I did uh, even a watch, uh, um, watchmaking uh, class uh, uh, two years ago to, to, to understand uh, better what, uh, what is behind, because being a CEO is good, but a CEO is not a, a watchmaker. So uh, I really had to, to learn and uh, I took the opportunity to, to to go on the workshop myself and to, to understand what I'm doing, uh, uh, people were working for the Betune. And what have you come to respect or at least appreciate about today's watchmaking art in your small time learning the craft? What I, uh, what I learned and uh, you know, the, the respect, I always had respect for, for, for watchmaker, even not for watchmaker, for people who are just decorating or finishing a, a movement or you know this is a addition of uh, know-how uh, and uh, all these people working for us they, they really uh, excel how is excel they, they're excellent in the in their field and uh, they've all my respect and uh, i learned that uh, you know uh, it's not not important what you are doing it's important the level uh, you're achieving things to be the best in what you do and all these people who are in watchmaker I have the respect because they, they really do their best and put all their soul on every every single movement they are doing so Pierre Jacques from Debentum thank you very much thank you Ariel it was a pleasure seeing you since uh, two years uh, thank you okay good interview but here's my question Okay, if you are a watchmaker for Debethune, you're absolutely at the top of your game. You know, you're working for like one of the most technically competent brands with more movements in their back catalogue, probably than actually watches they produce each year, something to be close to it. And your CEO comes in and says, hey guys, I'm doing a watchmaking course. What's your reaction as a watchmaker? You're thinking, wait a minute here. <laughs> Everything was okay because this, the head honcho would tell us what we needed to do in terms of the money and stuff. And now, now he's going to start interfering in actually how we make the watches. Is it a good thing for a chief executive who's not a watchmaker to go away and learn a bit more about watches? I think the operative knowledge here is that not all watch brand CEOs are what we call product people. Yeah, and that is individuals that truly care about their watches and care about you know watchmaking and are collectors themselves. Some are business people and love the personalities, love the watchmakers themselves, love the customers, love the salespeople, but might not love the product. Um, so for him, he pro he he has good taste. He likes watches, but I think that he represents a class of CEO who purposefully distances themselves from watchmaking because they're afraid 
that'll ruin a little bit the the mystique. They have to go out there with a straight face, say, uh, "Sir, Madam, this you know this has a price of you know one million dollars," <laughs> and they're worried that like if they spend too much time in the kitchen, they may not be able to say that with as straight of a face. Sometimes they say it with even more conviction, uh-huh. but I think they worry that you know. They they got something good. They don't want to ruin the relationship they have with the product because he has to treat it like a treasure. Yes. And sometimes you hear again, you hear chefs talk about making food. You don't always want to eat that. You don't want to know how the sausages are made. Was it That's law, another way law, of putting it. Laws and sausages. You don't want to see how either of them are made. I think he's appreciating that there's more to gain at this point, and that you know he's not like a gimmicky CEO that doesn't really like the brand, and he wants to know more about why the brand has all the appeal that it has. And I'm not saying he doesn't know these things, but again, you have to be very engineering-minded to understand watches like Devon Tune. You have to be very human-minded to sell watches like them. He is a relationship person, and it requires a completely different type of personality even being at those watches. It's not unfathomable that him or someone like him might be great at their job, but it might be difficult for them to really truly appreciate what makes the brand special. We will hear on a show to come from Tim Moss of Watchbox, who now have a significant uh, stake in Debethune, uh, about how he's training to be a watchmaker. So my question is, is Pierre Jacques and Tim Mosso both taking watchmaking courses together? Cause that would be, that would be a that would be a room you'd want to be in. You'd want to be a fly in the wall in that room, for that training course at Wostep or whatever it was. I think it would be mostly Tim Mosso trying to practice his French, and Pierre <laughs> trying to trying to actually work on watchmaking. Do you think Pierre would manage <laughs> to convince Tim not to wear sunglasses upside down on his head as a fashion? No, statement? I don't think he'd be successful. That is a that is a signature thing that Tim likes to do. He's a successful CEO, but he's not that successful. Well, I mean, look, you know, Tim doesn't report to him. Dave Bethune, I wonder to what extent Pierre, because he talked about this, how he's had basically two years of forced holiday, which I'm sure all the other CEOs are delighted to hear, uh, that this has just had to be what he's filled his time with, is learning how to make watches. But that's kind of why I asked about what his background was, because he's clearly a lifer then for Dave Bethune, and so it makes sense for him really to get into the, into the weeds with it, uh, especially if there has been a bit more time because of the lack of travel and the lack of him going around the world, you know, repping the brand. Where do you think Debethune now go to now that they've got this major investment? I mean, they, if you like, they're one step further forward than Acrivia. Debethune can now make the step up to whatever they want to be now that they've got Watchbox's millions to play with. Well, if they'd done this well having a CEO that doesn't know watchmaking, imagine how much better they'll do once he does know watchmaking. That's my first thought. (laughs) Uh, Look, the reality is that they have a supporter now. The reason that Watchbox invested in Deb and Toon was because of a phenomenon that happens where an American retail interest, this could happen anywhere in the world, honestly, gets a market for a watch brand. And then that brand says, oh, thanks for creating the market for us. We're going to take that distribution rights away from you and do it ourselves now. Now, this has happened to uh, Danny Goberg before mm-hmm. and, and in Goberg watches. And they say, wait a minute, we just put this effort into building a market for a brand in our where we live. And now we can't sell because you won't give us product. That sucks. The solution to that is having ownership in the brand or at least enough voting rights where they can't do that for, to you. Yes. 
he's not doing it because he thinks it's an amazing investment. Debentune is is a, is a luxury watch brand. It's basically like a vanity product, okay? It's just going to keep costing you money while looking pretty. But he recognizes that if he wants to actually grow the brand in the United States, the only safe way of doing it is to make sure the brand doesn't vote you out. Yes, and that's absolutely. effectively what he's done. And and there's been no other way of doing it. How can yep. you blame the guy? Yeah, no, no, it's a, a spot on, spot on. So our final interview today is from Felix at Urwerk. This is a bit of a different one. I think this gives you the full feeling behind the indie brands, you know, Urwerk, Acrivia, Debethun. Uh, have you known Felix for a long time? I got the impression that you went back a long way. Yeah, I mean, I've been seeing Felix at events like Basel World and SIHH. Again, two shows that don't exist anymore. <laughs> um, a blog to watch and Urwerk outlasted Basel World. Who'd have thought that, <laughs> eh? <laughs> and, you know, and I, Los Angeles, where, you know, where I live is a very important market for them because it's where West Time is. And West Time is a retailer and distributor that really made them in the United States and was very crucial in them becoming who they are. So America and the American market has always been a big deal to them and been very, very supportive um, of them and gotten their watches and lots of celebrities. And again, at the time when they started, they never imagined that like celebrities, Ralph Lauren, Michael Jordan, stuff like that would be wearing or work watches, this would be like a dream. Imagine you told a kid in Switzerland, like someday, you know, all these super famous people will be wearing your stuff. Like, oh my God, this is crazy. But then it also goes to the conversation of like, who are the types of people who are responsible for making these products? Or work watches are weird. And Felix and Martin, who um, are, are, are the duo that run the brand, are, you know, strange, strange characters. They have personalities and, and, that's what it sort of takes. You know, they're, they may not be as open and talking about the fact that celebrities wear them. They're, they might be secretly and inwardly appreciative about it, but, you know, Felix talks about not liking people and not liking to be around <laughs> them. And again, that he truly believes that, but, you know, when you're with customers, you might not want to say things like that. Yeah. Not that I'm a customer, but, like, what I'm saying is he, he knows more about what not to say than what to say. Yeah. But again... That's because in his heart, he's a watchmaker. He's not a people person. And so it just sort of, it goes to this sort of notion of, of the personnel is required to make these incredible objects. And I think that comes across in this interview. So let's uh, hear from Felix Baumgartner of Uwerk. Here at Dubai Watch Week 2021 at the Uwerk booth with co-founder Felix Baumgartner. Hey, Felix, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for asking me. I love to see you at these shows because I know how much you don't like getting away from the bench. You're a very dedicated uh, engineer and watchmaker, aren't you? This is what I am in my nature. Thank you uh, for saying that. Um, for me, it's for sure, these are important moments because I'm in touch with the public, with, with passionate collectors, but it's not my natural environment where I feel the most comfortable, as you say. And Dubai Watch Week is um, one of the more comfortable events because it's a little bit more laid back and you have the collectors and things like that. Um, how do you feel that this show compares to some of the other trade shows that we have become accustomed to? Um, you know, 
okay, I, I, I keep it quite basic, you know, quite natural. So, you know, in Geneva, the average temperature at the moment is like 5, 10 degrees. Quite cold. Quite cold, you know. Here in Dubai, it's 25 degrees. Much warmer. So that helps to the to the people, to the Swiss people who are exhibiting here, to be more calm, somehow, so more, more relaxed. Really. That gives that gives a drive. The sun uh, relaxes, so the people are open, and it gives a good atmosphere, an open atmosphere of exchange, and there is no pressure. Um, uh, we, we just have a good time here, you know, and it's 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 out of this world. Dubai is anyway a crazy center of economics, but for me, it's also a crazy center of of of, of the sun, good time, and, and passionate people who are looking to our watches. How important is Dubai in the Middle East region for the Orwick brand? It's a center in the Middle Eastern region. It's, it's our center, also due to our partner Sadiqi, which is based here in Dubai. So for us, it's much related to the, to the partner we have. And this is for sure in that region, number one partner is Siddiqui. So that makes it to us our center. A lot of people have been saying that um, independent watches are what they're interested in. I'm talking about collectors and there's an enormous amount of popularity for brands just like yours. Um, when the sort of new era of popularity started, what did you think about that? Do you think it's something that should in the last? What do you account for the sort of very, very strong popularity in brands like Orwood right now? Um, probably the people get educated in the last 10, 15, 20 years, and they see the differences between the bigger luxury industry, bigger brands, which have other values. They also have values, but other values, not so much uh, human watchmaker values than the independent or let's say the smaller brands. So, okay, the term independent brands is an interesting one because what is independent? So at the time when I started being an academy member in the AHCI, we were independent watchmakers. Independent Académie des Horlogers Créateurs Indépendants. That's the name of our academy, of the AHCI. So that's when it started, that whole independent movement. And it was not very popular, it was very purists. And for me, it's actually when a, a watchmaker it's, is able, and that's actually the way how you can become an academy member. You have to fulfill, you have to be a watchmaker, a trained watchmaker. You have to be able to create your own vision of, your, you create actually your own movement and be able to execute it by yourself. And you have to be proposed by other academy members, by two other academy members. That's how you become an independent academy member. So for me, that's still today the, the perfect uh, uh, mixture. If a watchmaker also uh, is the founder of the company and also a, 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 to be able to create his own creations. Last question. You are someone who always wants to be original with your designs. You never like to come up with the same thing twice and you oftentimes, at least it appears, don't like to do things that others do. And over the last two years, sort of in the isolation that was imposed upon many people, did you have a lot of new creative ideas? Um, you know, right now at the sort of beginning of the end of the pandemic or whatever you want to call it, I'm very curious as to sort of the, the creative ideas people have and what do they want to do next? Any interesting ideas you have on what you want to be the sort of next or work novelties? So we have 
you know myself and Martin, we are in constant research. And we are very, basically we are very curious guys. So we are, we, are, we, we are curious like children are. So every day we learn new stuff, new things, new possibilities, new ideas. And somehow I bring the carriage of the history. My father is a clockmaker, restores clocks still today. So I grew up with, with him, uh, with his atelier in the same, uh, actually on the, on the, on the side of my, of my bedroom. So I, I know what is, is possible to do in mechanics and I know what did already the history in the clocks, which is the foundation somehow of watchmaking. And we, we continue to, to, to ask the question, okay, what is a watch today? What is possible today with ma what materials and what makes sense today? And for sure, Corona somehow helped us because we became, we traveled less, so more time. But anyway, this is the essence of work, you know, so that we do it. This, this is work, you know, the research. Felix Baumgartner of work. thank you so much. Thank you. Oh. Okay, it's clear that Felix is a watchmaker who likes making watches. Have you ever met any watchmakers that actually don't like making watches like i you know there are some like tennis players and sports stars who happen to be really really good at a thing but it's actually kind of not their passion you know they do it because it makes them a lot of money or it keeps a roof over their family's head but actually they could equally walk away from it if they didn't enjoy the lifestyle Felix is clearly someone who would just make watches even if nobody paid him to do it. Have you ever come across anyone that you think, really, mate, you shouldn't be in this game? There are certainly people that see it as a as a meal ticket, and these are not the people that would ever run their own brand or anything like that. These would be people that have, you know, very simple, predictable blue-collar jobs at manufacturers. They would have technical positions, assembly, and things like that, maybe something a little bit more elevated in, like, repair work. They know they're good at it. They know it makes a stable income, but they would be behind the scenes. They yeah. wouldn't be someone that would be talking. Anyone who talks with me, by definition, is probably interested in watches. I am the person who's interested in watches. Maybe they're, maybe they, I, I can't see them being interested in the industry, but not interested in watches. You know what I mean? So yes. they're just, we're just never having this conversation. They do exist, but you know, this is a labor of love. You have to be sort of addicted to it. And, you know, a lot of people know the satisfaction that comes with producing something and watchmakers get to solve problems, get to live in their own little world, get to feel in control. I mean, the amount of control they feel by having this desk with these tools, this is sort of the watchmakers bench and all their tools and parts. You get to control everything from the environment to the cleanliness, to the oils. It's a very cathartic experience if you know what you're doing and you, and you, and you do it well, it's not for everyone. It is a lifestyle that I can completely understand people choosing. And if you do it correctly from a business perspective, you can earn quite handsomely. Now, did I detect a little bit of, I'm not quite sure what, a little bit of an edge to what Felix was saying in terms of the values that he believes he holds as far as a watchmaker in relation to the values he believes that the big brands hold, but also that there is like a sliding scale and he's observing that there are some of his co, 
or quotation marks, independent brands who are sliding along the scale further to the mainstream lack of human values. Uh, is yeah. he, was he having a bit of a go at some of the other brands that would be considered independent that maybe he doesn't think quite hold on to the values that he does at Urwerk? You're going to have this sort of inter-industry rivalry amongst great people. There's no one definition of what makes a great watch or a great brand. These people are going to understandably and predictably have their own tastes, their own opinions, their own rivalries. Ultimately, he is speaking from the privileged position of someone who was able to make it, was able to make money and, and establish a nice stable business with his craft. Some of that has to do with good fortune, not necessarily, you know, just him. There are other people that are just as good as him. So I, I think it's it's easy to take a lot of what he says with a grain of salt when it comes to his assessing, you know, what the correct values are. I mean, the correct values are what allow you to feed your family at the end of the day, you know. Yeah. That's, that's I think, how a lot of people would see it. But it's true that sort of if you look at the art form in an elitist sense, you need to value originality. You, you have to have a, a degree of respect for others and for history, and you need to have scruples. You have to have something you're trying to accomplish. Um, there's a lot of culture in, inherent in watchmaking, especially in, in Switzerland and Geneva, an enormous amount of culture, hundreds of years of it. And when you live in it, it's even deeper and more uh, in your face and more constricting on the decisions you make when you're far away uh, in Los Angeles or even you know, in the UK, you don't sort of see the, the, the confines of the culture. And so he is, in his own sense, a rebel, but living deeply ingrained within that culture. And so he's bound by it in a lot of ways. And where do you think he wants to take Urwerk and the culture of what? Because, you know, if there's one thing, I mean, let me think about this. If you look at Acrivia and Debethune, there are watches within those collections that you would consider look like your standard watch that a big brand would make. Yes, there are watches there that are very, very different as well. But in the case of our work, everything in their collection is, I don't know what the best phrase would be, otherworldly maybe. There is nothing there that resembles anything else that I can think of from a big mainstream brand. Where do you think, you know, clearly Felix and Martin are just the kids playing with the creative ideas. I think you said that just that it's like the toy shop. Where do you think he tries to take, uh, the two of them try to take our work going further into the 21st century? I think that you might be surprised as to how little they think about it. And I don't mean that in a negative way to them, but you have these people that are dreamers that are big kids. Yes. They're playing with watches all day. They get to design this fantasy stuff that nobody, you know, that, that the world isn't demanding you know no one's like guys we need to make a watch that does this quickly <laughs> the president's depending on it That's like right. to the batmobile <laughs> they're making toys and this is a very privileged existence this isn't the type of career you would take if you are a serial planner who's always thinking about the future they have a bit of a support network around them they've intentionally not wanted to grow too large i see them as people who have a stress threshold and they right. don't want to have a company that delivers more stress than they have right now they don't always know how to do that but they know that they're happier where they're at right now than being richer and more stressed out yeah i mean i think you're seeing three quite different 
aspects of independent brands between Acrivia, Debethune and Urwork. I think Acrivia is sitting there thinking, do we do we push forward? Do we employ people to do the marketing, the online stuff, the other bits and pieces that Sheppy referred to? You've got Debethune who are like, yeah, we need some investment. We're going to push this on. We're going to increase production, et cetera, et cetera. And you've got Urwork who are like, guys, just relax, just enjoy yourselves, make watches, and kumbaya, whatever will be, will be. Uh, it does seem to be three very different approaches to what you do with an independent watch brand. Which one of those three attitudes that we've seen in those three brands would be your attitude if you were in a watch brand? Again, it's a good question, but it's quite loaded. It presumes I know way too much information from the outside. Would you first Would you first need to go and train as a watchmaker? Do you think you could actually run a watch brand without being a watchmaker? Do, do you feel that you would... I think I would be okay at being a chief executive and not needing to know the minutiae. I get the impression that you would maybe be of the character that needs to know how absolutely... You know, you need to be able to do every job in the factory before you feel like like you could run the place. That's probably true. And I'll tell you this. I would know exactly what it takes to be good to watch a CEO. I would know what's required for success. I would know what is and isn't within their control. So I don't know that I would do a good job, but I would know how to give it a, a good shot. But again, luck has such... Uh, a big part of it. There's two types of CEOs, the ones that try to maneuver their company into making money and the ones that try to maneuver a company while it's making money to make sure that it continues to make money. Again, totally different skill sets, different companies have different needs depending on where they're at. It's really not about are you a good leader of this industry? It's are you a good leader for this brand at this time? And it's just so subjective. So there you go, caring group. If you would like the dream team for Ulysses Nardan and Jean Perigo, <laughs> we are here waiting for your call. Uh, that is our show for this week. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed it. There will be plenty more to come from the interviews that Ariel has done in Dubai Watch Week. Ariel, where should people find you and what are you up to? Thank you so much. Um, it's really been a pleasure to uh, talk about these interviews and relive Dubai Watch Week. Again, you can see um, all of my articles on blogtowatch.com and, and you can visit more blogtowatch.com on social media where we have additional stuff. We do the Superlative Podcast, which is an interview series, and we'll be doing more podcasting as well. Um, and I really look forward to everyone hearing the total uh, interview series of Dubai Watch Week 2021. Thank you. Good stuff, and you can find me on Instagram at @tiktok and the other series I do, which is at the Wind Up Merchants on Instagram. So from both of us to all of you, goodbye. Bye now. Bye.